Um, so Galatians 1, I, I want to start by saying this. I am aware of the fact that many of the people who grew up around Christianity now consider themselves to be non-religious. And most of them have left the church because what's the point, right? If you don't believe, why would you waste your time? And the Bible actually agrees with that assessment. If Jesus did not really rise from the dead, then, in, in my opinion, the Christian faith is just another human mythology and this is an absolute waste of your time. However, there are also now churches full of people who no longer believe what the Bible teaches. They don't believe that Jesus really rose from the dead or that he was really born of a virgin or that he really died for people's sins. And yet, those churches still gather because they value the community, or the music, or the culture. And for some people, Christianity then has just sort of become a folk religion. And I want to be honest with you, that really bothers me. It really, really bothers me. It makes me angry because I'm one of the crazy people who still believes that Jesus was actually born of a virgin. I believe that Jesus actually lived a perfect life. I believe that He actually died as a substitutionary atonement for people's sin. And I believe that He literally rose from the dead. In fact, I believe every word that the Bible teaches. And I'm not alone. There are people on every single continent worshiping Jesus today in thousands of languages. Christianity is not, for them, a folk religion. It is not a mythology that is reserved for a specific culture or a specific ethnic group or a specific moment in history. For them, Christianity, and for me, is the only truth. It is the only way that leads to the God who created this world. And it presents itself as an all-or-nothing proposition. It's not a pick-and-choose folk religion. Now that sounds exclusive. It sounds intolerant to modern ears. But what I want to say is that in reality, Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the history of the world. There is only one way. It is through Jesus Christ. But the way is open to literally anyone. Regardless of their social status, 
regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of what language they speak. And the truth is, the Christians across the world, we come from many different, very, very different cultures. And no other religion in this world has the footprint of Christianity. And for me, that is proof enough that the Bible is at least worth your attention. I'm going to be reading from Galatians chapter 1 this morning. Galatians is a letter in the New Testament. It was written after the resurrection of Jesus by the Apostle Paul. Paul was a missionary church planter. He started the churches in Galatia very early in his ministry, probably during his first missionary journey. And so this letter was written to some of the first non-Jewish Christians in the world. Now please understand, Christianity began as a Jewish messianic movement. Okay, So the, the followers of Jesus believed that He was the promised Messiah whom the Jews were waiting for and that he had been crucified for their sins, and that three days later he rose from the dead. But in the beginning, most of the people who believed this about Jesus were ethnically Jewish. It wasn't until after the dramatic conversion of the Apostle Paul, and after his missionary journeys began, that a lot of non-Jewish people started to believe in Jesus. And that caused a big debate in the early church because the Jewish Christians didn't know what to do with the non-Jewish Christians. Many of them believed that these Gentiles, because that's what they called them, needed to become Jewish in order to be real Christians. But Paul argued that the message of the gospel would be completely destroyed if that happened. And we looked at this last Sunday. So by adding requirements to a simple profession of faith in Jesus, these teachers were distorting the gospel. And so this is where we're going to land this morning in verse 10, Galatians chapter 1. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the central issue here is this idea of seeking the approval of men. The Jewish Christians wanted the new believers to become Jewish. And if that happens, Christianity would have died in the first century. And Paul knew this. But more importantly, God knew it, and God protected the message of the gospel. He protected these young Christians from that teaching. Because God did not care about the Gentile Christians becoming Jewish. Humans cared about that. 
And Paul did not care about gaining the approval of his own people. He cared about God, not men. Verse 11. And this is what I actually, let me go back. This is what I actually want to focus on this morning, okay? Again, just to repeat this. This faith, the Christian faith, is by God, it's for God, and it is about God. It is not a human invention. It is, again, not a folk religion. It is not a mythology. It is about God, the true God. It is not about men. It is not made by men. Okay, so having said that again, just to make that clear, verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. I want to pause here and just say, this is one of the reasons that I believe the Bible is absolutely true. The Apostle Paul's conversion makes no sense without divine intervention. Okay, So why would a man known for persecuting Christians so, quick, so quickly switch sides? He was the most unlikely convert. Paul, who was formerly known as Saul, already believed that he was doing the work of God. He wasn't feeling like this sense of, man, I'm just not sure God is right with me. I'm just not sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. No, Paul was completely bought in and zealous. He was doing the work of God in his mind. He was further motivated also by the opinions of his peers And so converting to Christianity would mean abandoning his status. It would mean giving up his his culture, his way of life, his people, his family, everything. And no man at that time in that culture... You see, we're far more individualistic than most cultures throughout history and even in the world today. No one in this time, in this place, would ever do this without some sort of significant and compelling motivation to do so. But look at how Paul explains it. Verse 15. He says, But when He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles... We're going to pause mid-thought because I want us to look very closely at this section of the story. He says, God set me apart. God is the subject. Paul is the object. So he's saying God initiated this 
relationship. He initiated this conversion. God instigated it. God acted and Paul was acted upon. Do you see this? But notice when this happened. He says, before I was born. In Greek it says, from my mother's womb. In other words, God set Paul's conversion in motion before Paul was born. Meaning, before Paul could contribute anything to his own conversion. If you think about the experience of being a baby in the womb, none of us remember it, right? Our brains weren't really awake at that. I mean, we just we were we were just being kept alive. It's the most passive human experience that we have. We do nothing. We are kept alive by this passive connection to our mother. And we have no choice in the matter, right? You didn't choose to be conceived. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your birthday. You didn't choose the circumstances of your birth. And yet, Paul says, God set me apart before birth. At a time when Paul clearly had nothing to do with it. No choice in the matter at all. And then he continues this passive language. He says, God called me. God, again, is the subject. Paul is the object. By His grace. Remember what the word grace means? It means undeserved or unearned blessing. It means receiving a reward when you deserved a punishment. So Paul says, God called me. He called me. Even though I did nothing to be set apart. I did nothing to deserve a call. I did nothing to be noticed. On the contrary, Paul, in the moment of his conversion, was a complete enemy of God. And yet, God was pleased to reveal His Son to me. And so at this moment, that I want to pause and I want to actually read the story of Paul's conversion from Acts chapter 9. I want you to see what it looks like. Okay, Acts 9 verse 1. It says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So Jesus appeared to Paul on the road, and I want you to notice that Paul was not on his way to learn about Jesus. Paul was not seeking after Jesus. Paul's heart was not soft to the message of the gospel. Paul did not give in to the opiate of the masses. Paul was on his way to specifically persecute more people who believed this stuff. Jesus had died a few years before this event. Paul knew what Christians believed. He was a very intelligent, very educated man. He had interviewed and interrogated Christians. Probably he had interviewed and interrogated Christians who had been eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. He knew what they believed. And he completely rejected their testimony. Or else he would not be on the way to persecute them. His intention was to eliminate this messianic cult. This blasphemous cult. That was his intention. Jesus was the only person in the universe who could realistically convince someone like this to convert to Christianity. Now listen to me. This is the point. That's always true. That is always true for everyone. No one is seeking after God. No one. Not if you believe what the Bible teaches. You're not here today because you're looking for God. If you're here today, it's by the grace of God and because God wanted you here. That's why you're here. Conversion is the business of God, not men. If you start following Jesus today, it is because God set you apart before you were born. It is because God called you. It is because God revealed His Son to you. It is because God is because God chooses to work through the preaching of His Word. But please understand, I'm not convincing anyone to change their mind about Jesus this morning. I don't have the power to do that. All I can do is tell you what I believe the Scriptures teach, and in some miraculous, mysterious way, God, by His Spirit, chooses to do something with that. It has absolutely nothing to do with me. It is His Word. It is His Gospel. 
It is his power. I want you to see how the story continues. Paul says, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Cephas is Peter. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And then he says, In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. I want to suggest to you this is important testimony. Okay, Paul is including this information to show, to, to try to reinforce the idea that this, this gospel message that he's proclaiming is not a human invention. Okay? There weren't a bunch of people that got together and said, wouldn't this be a cool religion? All we got to do is convince people this and this and this, right? He's saying that's not what happened. There was no conspiracy. There was no plot to start a new faith, a new religion. Okay? Paul was not a strategic convert right? who'd been paid off by the early church to legitimize the faith. In fact, Acts tells us that the Christians were afraid of Paul. They didn't trust him for years. And of course, after he converted, the Jews wanted to kill him. And all of that reinforces for me the origin story of the gospel message. Paul did not reason his way to belief in Jesus. He wasn't discipled by the apostles. He wasn't sold a bill of goods. He wasn't paid to believe this. What explanation does this leave? I mean, how does a, a deeply religious man who is well-respected and admired in his own context, in his own culture, why would he abandon his religion and all of that, all of that culture, even his family, so quickly to join the movement that he spent years trying to stamp out. Is it possible that God actually did what Paul claims? Verse 21, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now per, uh, preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Who did they glorify? God. Not Paul. Not the apostles. Not men. They glorified God. And why does God get the glory? Because God did this, beginning to end, God did this, not men. Paul references his personal testimony in almost every letter. He tells the story three times just in the book of Acts, and so it was always an important part of his presentation of the gospel. 
And it never makes Paul sound like a good guy. It required Paul to tell the most embarrassing, shameful thing about his past every time he told the story. Oh yeah, I tried to, I tried to kill these people, right? Every single time he tells his testimony, it makes him look bad, but every time it made God sound awesome. Why? Because of grace. Because of grace. And what I want you to hear, if you hear nothing else today, it is grace that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. And I'm very confident in that statement because I have intentionally looked for it more than once. You will not find it anywhere else. Grace, as the Bible defines it, is a completely unique religious concept. There is no other religion in history with a similar idea. Now, the idea has been borrowed by many works of fiction throughout history. In fact, many of the best-selling novels of all time feature plots based on the concept of grace because the world absolutely loves the idea of it because it's so remarkable but it is clearly not a concept that we invented because I would argue that humans are actually generally offended by it when it actually happens. It feels unfair. It feels unjust to us. But grace is the masterpiece of God. It must be because it defies human understanding and in every circumstance, it points us to God. I'll give just one example in closing. There are many, but just one. Catherine Kuntz was one of the victims a few weeks ago in Nashville at Covenant School. And I want to read some of the words that were spoken by her husband at her funeral. He said this. He said, Catherine would be embarrassed if our adoration or our admiration of her distracted us from other wounded households. She was a champion for others. And among the first to recognize when someone is isolated and lacking support, burdened by shame, he said, therefore, honoring Catherine compels us to remember a seventh family equally wounded in the loss of someone dear to them. We count on the Lord and our community to support that family generously, extravagantly, and to offer them the hope that sustains us. We are trusting in the strong and loving embrace of a strong and loving God to take each of the seven that died and heal their wounds and their souls. And that, brothers and sisters, is what grace looks like.
And I would argue that such words, such, such things are impossible. They are incomprehensible apart from the hand of God. God invented grace. It's how a man who lost his wife can ask his community to love the family of the person who took her life. It's how God turned a persecutor of His church into a leader of His church. It's why the perfect Son of God died in the place of sinners like me and like you. And it is how God invites us into His own family, even though we're rebels. Grace brings God immense glory. It is His masterpiece. And there is no other way Brothers and sisters, this is not a folk religion. This is not just a nice thing to believe. It's not just a fun thing to do. To dress up a few Sundays a year, to put out some beautiful flowers and sing some songs because it makes us feel better. That's not what this is. He is risen. He is risen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, You don't need um, our words. You don't need my words. You don't need our songs to give You the praise that You deserve. You are worthy of everything we have and more because You created us you sustain us. The breath we just took, the breath we are about to take, we are taking because You're being gracious to us. And Father, I pray that if there are any in this room that just have ignored that reality, even though it's so obvious and it's all around us, Father, I pray that You would do the work that only You can do to wake us up, to help us to see with eyes of clarity and truth that You created this world, that You own it, that You own us. This is not just a fun story. This is the truth. Lord, I pray that You would impress it upon our hearts and our minds. I pray that those whom You have set apart from birth that You would call them today. That You would lead them to confess sin. To speak words of faith and repentance to You. And this is between You and them. And I pray that You would do it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please remain seated for this.